What's up, everybody? This is Esoteric Eddie. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast version of Esoteric Eddie TV. I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. For people experiencing schizophrenia or a Kundalini spiritual awakening. What up, everybody? Esoteric Eddie here. We got a deep, deep dive today. I just finished reading through various articles having to do with um, psychosis, kundalini, spiritual awakening, and that kind of thing. And whether or not they have some sort of connection, if one is, you know, inducing the other, or if one is masked in the mis- uh, diagnosis of the other, so on and so forth. Um, but I hope everybody's doing good and I hope you enjoy this presentation. Uh, I'm going to be going through three articles which I've already read for you and highlighted per usual. And I'll also be referencing some other uh, material alongside of these articles. So before we get started, I'm going to just kind of briefly, you know, prepare you for what it is we're going to be speaking about and what we're going to be reviewing here. So um, I've heard throughout my years that, you know, Kundalini can induce psychosis or uh, a paradigm breaking, a mental breakdown. And actually, the first time I ever heard about this was when I was in high school my friend Jimmy, shout out Third Page, um, my old uh, beat producer when I was a rapper. Uh, I heard through him that his cousin up in San Francisco was getting into Kundalini meditation and he wasn't prepared for it. You know, his cousin just simply wasn't prepared for it. And I guess he ended up having some mental breakdown and was in the hospital for days or weeks. I don't remember. But what I do remember Jimmy telling me is that his cousin was having this mental breakdown and he was seeing hallucinations and he kept seeing, I guess, reptilians with swords. That's what I remember. That's what stuck out to me. And I just remember thinking that that was horrible and that kind of um, made, made me afraid of Kundalini and kind of yoga in general for many years but obviously i now know that yoga is benign and actually very beneficial but kundalini yoga and meditation is uh risky and should be taken with uh you know respect and careful consideration so we're going to be diving a little bit into kundalini psychosis and uh, you know whether or not you know, schizophrenia or other forms of psychosis might be um, early signs of a kundalini awakening or if maybe doctors are misdiagnosing um, the early signs of a kundalini awakening as psychosis and thus suppressing the kundalini awakening. And uh, we'll also be diving into um, ancient Egyptian mystery rites and how they were used for similar purposes to induce a sort of psychosis and kundalini, but more specifically to induce 
the spiritual realization, or as I would say nowadays, the existential realization that we are not just merely our bodies, but our eternal beings, and that death is an illusion. We're going to finish off with that. Um, it all kind of ties in, you know, Kundalini, psychosis, um, you know, interdimensional, uh, you know, spirits and uh, death and the transition of death. And we'll also be getting into, I know there's something I'm missing here. Um, but yeah, bas basically all of that, you know, and, and kind of just going over it and seeing what's up. You know, what's up with Kundalini? What's up with the spirit realm? What's up with psychosis? What's up with death? Oh, that's it. Yeah, we'll also be briefly going into near-death experiences and how that plays a part. So kick back, relax. Uh, I already did all the hard work for you. I read through these articles. Luckily, each of them was only about 15 pages. And, um, you know, I'll be referencing them so you can go check them out and stuff too and all that. Anyways, kick back, relax, welcome. This is Esoteric Eddie TV. Yup. Alright, so. The first article that we're going to be getting into, and uh, if you is titled "Presence of Spirits and Madness." If you watched my recent Thursday Q and A number three, then you got a brief introdu introduction into this article, and you also saw that I was super stoked and hyped on this, and I knew that I was going to have to come back to this, and I did, and it was this article that actually inspired this entire uh, episode. So. So yeah, lucky you, you get to sit here with me and dive into this. So the first article again is Presence of Spirits in Madness um, by Wilson Van Dusen. Now real quick, Wilson Van Dusen, as I have pulled up here, was an awesome guy. And I could do a whole dive on this dude alone if my computer wasn't so slow, man. Um, oh man, okay, so yeah, Wilson Van Dusen, as you see here, there's not a lot on him, or at least I haven't dove deep enough to find a lot on him, but basically this this basic biography here says that, you know, he was a clinical psychologist with a PhD, of course, and he spent many years dealing with schizophrenics and, and uh, mental mentally ill patients, but he sort of ventured off into more mystical subjects for some time, but unfortunately wasn't able to study it for very long. He wasn't able to study these mystical subjects for very long before the secular world pulled him back out. And he ended up achieving a lot for um, the mental health industry and stuff like that. But this first article is going to be by Wilson Van Dusen. And he's from the early 20th century, born in 1923 in San Francisco, and died out in Ukiah, California. Hey, shout out my NorCal broskies. But yeah, so this is from him. It's titled The Presence of Spirits and Madness, A Confirmation of Swedenborg in Recent Empirical Findings. Now, real quick, before we get started, we also have to... Uh, go over who Swedenberg was because uh, as you'll see he is very important and integral to this whole subject and episode and again I could do a whole deep dive on Emanuel Swedenberg as well and I think I will because I've been needing to and he's amazing so Swedenberg basically was a Swedish pluralistic uh, 
Christian theologian, scientist, philosopher, and mystic who lived from 1668 to 1772. And he's got a lot of fascinating writings having to do... having to do with the mind, with heaven and hell, with spirits, and basically what we call psychosis now and what they might have called back then possession. And so, yeah, Swedenborg, just super awesome guy. Um, Again, so this is Wilson Van Dusen's essay, article, whatever, uh, basically comparing his research of psychosis and spirits with the works of Swedenborg. All right, so this this uh, article was reprinted um, by the Swedenborg Foundation, and there's a cool little intro about Van Dusen, which I want to start off with. And it says here that um, Wilson Van Dusen was the chief psychologist at Mendocino State Hospital in California, where he worked among the mentally ill for 17 years. In his spare time, he had discovered a way of getting an unusually accurate, detailed picture of the inner experience of hallucinations. Unfortunately, the press of other administrative responsibilities took him away from his fascinating area of research towards the design of national programs, especially in drug abuse treatment. The dude was just an angel, man. A mystic psychological angel. Mystic psychologist angel. Yep, that's what it says on his resume. Alright, so... We're going to get into it. These these are the words of Van Dusen, all right? 17 years in the game. Let me just minimize my miniature self over here. Move me to the side. Okay. So, by an extraordinary series of circumstances, a confirmation appears to have been found for one of Emanuel Swedenberg's more unusual doctrines, that man's life depends on his relationship to a hierarchy of spirits. I notice similarities between what 20th century patients describe and Swedenberg's 18th century accounts. I will first describe how I worked and my findings, and then relate this to Swedenberg's work. All the people involved hallucinated. They included chronic schizophrenics, alcoholics, brain damaged, and senile persons. That one shocked me to the fact that alcoholics would be thrown in there. Um, I myself have dealt with alcoholism and actually am quite in the process of still dealing with it. And it's something that I'm not totally yet um, vulnerable to be completely open about. But that one sort of shocked me. And, uh, yeah, anyways, I, well, it shocked me because, well, for, of course, it's something I've been dealing with, but I myself have also had very strange paranormal and psychedelic experiences on and off drugs. And so this article, this, this whole presentation, to be honest, these three articles have, have changed my life literally tonight. I read all these tonight and I'm going through a sort of existential, um, I wouldn't say like, I don't know. I'm going, I'm just going through an existential shift. It's, it's an awesome, exciting shift. You know, it's that same feeling that like when you just read a really good book that you love and that just changes the way you perceive things. That's how I feel right now. Just very existentially uplifted in a sort of subtle psychedelic state. But, uh, anyway, so getting back to the words of Van Dusen here, he says, 
The average layman's picture of the mentally ill as raving lunatics is far from reality. Most of these people have become entangled in inner processes and simply fail to manage their lives well. Some become so enmeshed in inner processes that they slip to lower levels of mental disorder. The most severe disorder is usually that of a person who sits all day involved in inner processes, who obediently obeys the request of hospital staff to dress, eat, bathe, and sleep in the hospital routine. That kind of reminded me of like, you know, the sheeple, if you will, you know, it's like, I don't know, after I read all these things, it made me realize that most people in this world are are suddenly mentally ill and it's a strange thing so there's this whole i don't know there's a whole idea developing in my mind and i'm starting to see it clear like the system kind of makes us all subtly mentally ill which kind of opens us up to psychosis which could be kundalini or spiritual awakening which can allow the interaction or interface for spirits but i'm getting way too ahead of myself here so as we carry on a conversation with one of these patients might indicate to the visitor that the patient has an unusual set of beliefs for instance that he is kept in the hospital by a gang of thieves or that ordinary clouds are radiation pollution i love that one because it reminded me of like all the the chemtrail people you know like Obviously, chemtrails are real and that kind of stuff, but I have friends who literally just can't enjoy, like, a simple cloud formation, you know? It's like, everything's a chemtrail. That's a chemtrail. That's a chemtrail. It's like, no, calm down. It's a cloud, okay? There there are still clouds, and I think we should appreciate clouds for what they are, you know? It's like, can a cloud just be a cloud? Why do we always have to, you know, talk down on them? Like, you're not a cloud, buddy. You're just radiation pollution. Let the clouds be, man. What'd they do to you? Anyways, I, th- I just thought that one was funny. And this is very true. I've, again, you've probably heard me say this many times. Um, I have known at least two, probably more people in my life personally who have suffered schizophrenia and gone through these sort of things. And, and all of them always feel like they are being followed or watched by some organization or agency. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to see Van Dusen say that these people will feel like they're being kept in the hospital by a gang of thieves or something. There's always that element of some sort of organization or something that's, that's after them. Okay, after dealing with hundreds of such patients, I discovered that it was possible to speak to their hallucinations. It soon became apparent that many were embarrassed by what they saw and heard, and hence they concealed it from others. Also, they knew their experiences were not shared by others, and some were even concerned that their reputations would suffer if they revealed the obscene nature of their voices. I struck up a relationship with both the patient and the persons he saw and heard. In this way, I could hold long dialogues with a patient's hallucinations and record both my questions and their answers. That's wild. You know, to like be mediating a conversation through a schizophrenic to these spirit beings. It's freaking crazy. He says, my only purpose was to come 
to as accurate as a, a description as possible of the patient's experiences. I was honestly trying to learn of their experiences. They were not paid or even promised recovery or release from the hospital. On several occasions, I held conversation with hallucinations that the patient himself did not really understand. They seemed to be honest people, as puzzled as I was, to explain what was happening to them. The differences among the experiences of schizophrenics, alcoholics, the brain damage, and senile were not as striking as the similarities. For most individuals, the hallucinations came on suddenly. One woman was working in a garden when an unseen man addressed her. Another man described sudden loud noises and voices he heard while riding in a bus. All patients described voices as having the quality of a real voice, sometimes louder, sometimes softer than normal voices. When things are seen, they appear fully real. For instance, a patient described being awakened one night by Air Force officers calling him to the service of his country. He got up and was dressing when he noticed their insignia wasn't quite right. Then their faces altered. He struck one hard in the face. He hit the wall and entered his hand. He could not distinguish them from reality until he noticed the insignia. All right, let's stop right there. Creepy stuff, man. You know, um, oh my God, I've always had this like mild fear of becoming a schizophrenic and I've spoken on this in several episodes and podcasts and it was because it's been a real thing for me. And again, I don't know where that came from, but I don't know. I, just, I was just very awake at a, at a very early age and... I've had strange, what I would even call schizophrenic episodes, but I've tried to stave off from like uh, um, encouraging that sort of thought for myself. You know, like I, I basically just I try to write off some of these experiences as as just my mind playing tricks on me. You know, because if the more you think about it, the more you're gonna drive yourself crazy. But I have had some strange experiences in my life and. Of course, some drug-induced, but some not drug-induced, so I think the drugs may have, may, might have just had a longer-lasting effect on me, and that's actually why I'm enjoying sobriety now. You know, there's nothing more beautiful and awesome to me than just knowing you are sober and clear-minded of any influences. Um, but I have a friend, a very close friend of mine, who I may maybe might sit down with and do an interview for the channel, because I've mentioned him so many times, but... He described to me, after he got well, what some of his schizophrenic episodes were like. And this one was just kind of funny. He said that f frequently, uh, President Joe Biden would show up, just material materialize in front of him and just ask to shake his hand. Hey, buddy, let me smell you. Shake your hand. You know, like, it's just, it's just that's wild, man, to like be able to hallucinate in real in real life or like without drugs just like pff, to see like random people like that it's just it's just wild you know and um but this, this air force one is crazy you know they just be woken up by hallucinations woken up by air force dudes and then they have this weird insignia on them just like ashtar command here come come on boy we're with the ashtar command we need your help we're gonna go fight reptilians on venus and you're just like 
in the middle of a sleep like well yeah okay yeah yeah let's go let's go and then all of a sudden their faces start to morph and then that's when you realize they're not real you try to punch them in the face and you hit the wall i mean jeez man god bless these people's hearts man having to go through that anyways we got a lot of information to get through so let's get back to it in my dialogues with patients, I learned of two orders of experience. Lower order voices are as though one is dealing with drunken bums at a bar who like to tease and torment just for the fun of it. They find a weak point of conscience and work on it interminably. They suggest foolish acts, such as raise your right hand in the air and stay that way, and tease if he does it and threaten him if he doesn't. The lower order can work for a long time to possess some part of the patient's body. Several worked on the ear and the patient seemed to grow deafer. One voice worked two years to capture a patient's eye, which visibly went out of alignment. They threatened pain and can cause felt pain as a way of enforcing their power. This kind of creeped me out when he said that these lower order voices are similar to people who are just drunken bums at a bar who are looking for trouble. It's like, got me looking at alcohol way different and, and people who are like blacked out way different, you know? Obviously alcohol, as they say, comes from the Arabic al ghul or whatever, which is a spirit you know and that's why it's called spirits but being blacked out is so strange you know to to lose your your consciousness and be overtaken by the alcohol and it's crazy how van dusen noticed that these lower order voices are, are like these drunken stumbling people who are blacked out who are shouting obscenities and just looking for trouble it's 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 strange man we definitely live in an interdimensional universe and some of our thoughts aren't our own, you know. And he says here, the vocabulary and range of ideas of the lower order is limited, but they have a persistent will to destroy. They never have a personal identity, though they accept most names or identities given them. They either conceal or have no awareness of personal memories. Though they claim to be separate identities, they will never reveal in detail, or though they claim to be separate identities, they will reveal no detail that might help to trace them as separate individuals. So it's like these voices are always like, no, I'm my own being, but they have like a limited perception or a limited um, response. They, they can't ever actually tell you who they are or where they come from. I've heard it said by the higher order that the purpose of the lower order is to illuminate all of the person's weaknesses. The limited vocabulary and range of ideas of the lower order is striking. A few ideas can be repeatedly can be repeated endlessly. One voice just said, "Hey," for months, while the patient tried to figure out what "Hey" or "Hey" H A Y was meant. Oh my gosh, that would be menacing, dude, just to hear, hey, hey, for like months, dude. Oh, dude, no way. F that. That would drive me crazy. The lower order seems incapable of sequential reasoning. So the lower order seems to be like this 
just a lower vibration, like barely existing, just muddled formation of, of just that lower thought forms existing in this lower vibrational realm that kind of like simmer into existence and then quickly fade away or something, you know? They seem imprisoned in the lowest level of the patient's mind, giving no real evidence of a personal world or any higher order thinking or experiencing. All of the lower order are irreligious or anti-religious. This is where it gets weird. They appeared as conventional devils and referred to themselves as demons. In a few instances, they referred to themselves as from hell. Occasionally, they would speak, though, through the patient so that the patient's voice and speech would be directly those of the voices. Sometimes they acted through the patient. One of my female patients was found going out the hospital gate, arguing loudly with her male voice that she didn't want to leave, but he was insisting. That has always spooked me out, not going to lie. Like, I've heard a lot of, a lot of uh, stories from exorcist or whatever on youtube and stuff about that phenomenon or phenomena which one everyone it is that uh that phenomenon or whatever uh, uh of people speaking in two voices at once that is crazy dude that would be so wild to, to witness i remember listening to an exorcist a while back on an interview and he was asked, like, what's the craziest thing you've seen or witnessed? And you would think it's some something like gnarly out of a movie, but his answer was was uh his answer wasn't that dramatic, but in a sense was the most scariest thing, I guess, the way he said it. But anyways, his answer was the most the craziest thing he saw or witnessed was that one time he was delivering this this lady or whatever. And her mouth opened up her mouth opened up and did not move, but a voice was just booming out of it, like booming, like he said the voice filled the air. <laughs> so dude, F that, please. I do not want to see that ever, dude. Oh my god. Maybe I do. I don't know. I used to actually want to be an exorcist when I was younger. Um Okay. So in direct contrast stands the rare, rarer, higher order hallucinations. In quantity, they make up perhaps a fifth or less of the patient's experiences. The contrast may be illustrated by the experience of one man. He had heard the lower order arguing a long while how they would murder him. He also had a light come to him at night like the sun. He knew it was a different order because the light respected his freedom and would withdraw if it frightened him. In contrast, the lower order worked against his will and would attack if it could see fear in him. This rarer higher order seldom speaks. The higher order is much more likely to be symbolic, religious, supportive, genuinely instructive, and communicate directly with the inner feeling of the patient. When the man was encouraged to approach his friendly son, he entered a world of powerful, numinous experiences, in some ways more frightening than the murderers who plotted his death. In one scene, he found himself at the bottom of a long corridor with doors at the end behind, which raged the powers of hell.
He was about to let out those powers when a very powerful and impressive Christ-like figure appeared and by direct mind-to-mind communication counseled him to leave the doors closed and follow him into other experiences which were therapeutic to him. In another instance, the higher order appeared to a man as a lovely woman who entertained him while showing him thousands of symbols. Though the patient was a high school educated gas pipe fitter, um, basically me, his female vision showed a knowledge of religion and myth far beyond the patient's comprehension. In general, the higher order is richer than the patient's normal experience, respectful of his freedom, helpful, instructive, supportive, highly symbolic, and religious. Some patients experience both the higher and lower orders at various times and feel caught between a private heaven and hell. Yeah, there it is, folks. Heaven and hell, man. It's all in the mind. And you know, it's crazy because if we're a microcosm of God, the universe, and we're having a heaven and hell in our minds, then maybe a heaven and hell does exist on the macro. But that heaven and hell is just the mind of God or the universe, the the omni-consciousness, if you will. Crazy stuff, man. Wild, wild, wild. Literally crazy. No pun intended. Several things stood out as curious and puzzling. The lower order seemed strangely prevalent and limited. Their malevolence and persistence in undermining the patient was striking, and why they would consistently be unreligious or anti-religious. Just the mention of religion provokes anger and derision from them. In contrast, the higher order appeared strangely gifted, sensitive, wise, and religious. They did not conceal identity, but rather would have an identity above the human. For instance, A lady of the higher order was described as an emanation of the feminine aspect of the divine. When I implied she was divine, she took offense. She herself was not divine, but she was an emanation of the divine. You know, recently I did a dive on Adam Weissop's book, Diogenes' Lamp, right? The founder of the Illuminati. And he spoke about humans not yet fully reaching their spiritually developed stage and how we were going to head towards that. And so these higher and lower order voices kind of, you know, remind me of that in a sense that if all of this is merely just psychological and mental, it's almost like the, the lowest part of our consciousness is these lower voices. And that's all it can express itself as. But the higher part of our consciousness is this higher order of symbolism and religion. And and that's also kind of, again, like a micro-macro spectrum of, of human beings. You know, at the very lowest of our nature, we are murderers. We are these vile creatures. But at the very highest of our morality, we are these sophisticated, enlightened, intellectual beings who can achieve so much. So it's almost like... We have it in innate in us to, to to be either or, and and more importantly, that higher order is a symbol or a reflection of what we can become. And so uh, Van Dusen continues by saying, 
I read and admired Swedenborg's work for some while, primarily because his religious experiences fit with my own and partly because of his immense knowledge of the hypnagogic state and the inner structure of the psyche. Swedenborg describes all of life as a hierarchy of beings representing essentially different orders and yet acting in correspondence with each other. The Lord acts through celestial angels who in turn correspond on a lower level to spiritual angels who in turn correspond to a third lower heaven all of which correspond to and and who correspond to and acts into man. On the opposite side there are three levels of hell acting out acting out of direct contact into man. Man is the free space and meeting ground of these great hierarchies. In effect, good and sorry, in effect, good and its opposite evil rule through this hierarchy of beings down to man who stands in the free space between them. Yeah, we we are the middle ground of of heaven and hell. You know, and that's why that's how it was always kind of explained to me in like mystical Christianity. It's like the angels, the demons, they're they're all jealous of us in a sense because the angels and the angels and the demons are constricted to their realms, whereas we humans can choose more or less which what we want to be. You know, we are the great mediator between heaven and hell. Swedenborg's doctrine of the effect of spirits with man is simply the lower aspect of a whole cosmology of the structure of existence. Such, and this this is a, a quote here from Swedenborg, such is the equilibrium of all in the universal heaven that one is moved by another, thinks from another as if in chain, so that not the least thing can occur from itself. Thus the universe is ruled by the Lord and indeed with no trouble. From this order of creation, it may appear that such is the binding chain of connection from first to last that all things together make one, in which the prior cannot be separated from the posterior, um, just as a cause cannot be separated from its effects. Yeah, very important, man. Again, it's like that whole thing of angels and demons are simply here to teach us you know they are a part of the one you know and so we get so caught up in this war this holy war or whatever this battle when really it's it's it, it is a battle and it's and i think it's it's useful to view it that way at times but really it's it's less of a battle more of just a school you know we're, we're in school and it's like we have these different periods right and, and some of our teachers are angelic, some of our teachers are demonic, but they all work for the principal. So each man or spirit is given to feel he is free and rules, yet all are ruled. In the normal man, spirits are adjoined to the man's spirit, or what is the same, to more unconscious levels of his mind, so that man is not aware of them. They flow into his feelings or into the matrix of thought. In modern terms, one would say spirits are in the unconscious and there live out their desires and what is to man the origin of his thoughts and feelings. In the normal situation, man is not aware of their action, taking it to be his own thought and feeling. And this is something I've spoken about many times throughout my recent 
you know, interviews and in my recent book and documentary, The Crystal Lattice Mind Illusion, we live in an interdimensional universe. And I've said recently that in some of these dimensions exist thoughts, fetishes, desires. And in these different realms, these, these thoughts, these archetypes can become egregores, can become self-aware beings, you know, given enough time and, and uh, right circumstance, right? Because all consciousness is really, according to the mainstream explanation, is a summation of sensory perception working together to produce the illusion of an identity, of an ego. And by that standard... AI can be conscious, animals can be conscious, and, you know, these egregoric, archetypal spirits, energy spirits, can also become conscious. And so, yeah, as Swedenberg, or as Van Busen was saying, um, you know, we, we, our mind, our brain is, is our brain is, is a receiver for our own consciousness. So, because of that, our brain can also pick up other uh, frequency, other energy, other spirits. And so, our brain can be a hub for other spirits to hang out. And so, some of our thoughts might not even be our own thoughts. They might be other consciousnesses that are creeping in. Man is free to act, but by this relation to a hierarchy of spirits, his tendencies are conditioned. His identification with good or evil tendencies by his acts further the conditioning in one direction or another. Evil spirits reside in a lower but still unconscious area of the mind, the personal memory. They take on the memory of the man, and neither the man nor they know that they are separate. This part's weird, and it creeps me out. Because, <laughs> like, I get, I understand that... You know, we can have spirits in our mind or whatever and, and not be aware of them. But Van Pusen here is, is saying that the spirits themselves can be in our minds or in our brains or wherever and be unaware of it too. They might think that they are operating through us as if this is their body and not to realize that they're actually, you know, um, housed in a body that doesn't belong to them. That's kind of weird, you know, and as, as, as he will point out later, it's the realization on both of our parts, the human and the spirit, that we are both here operating in the same space that causes uh, the, the tension and the conflict. In Swedenberg's personal diary and other works, he tells how he felt gifted by the Lord with the experience of both of heaven and hell and could examine over a period of many years their exact relationship to man. Let me pause here real quick. Forgot to mention earlier, earlier, Swedenberg actually induced himself into psychosis to study this in depth, which I think is another badass thing about him. But he he was a very intellectual man, very accomplished and successful, and was still able to function even after inducing his psychosis for research purposes. So he did this, as Van Busen continues, to learn of the powers and tendencies of evil spirits. He was attacked by them as though he were a man possessed, yet it was not permitted that he be injured by them. 
He indicates that normally there is a barrier between these spiritual entities and man's own consciousness. He also makes quite clear that if this barrier of awareness were penetrated, the man would be in grave danger for his mental health and even for his life. If evil spirits knew they were with the man, they would do all sorts of things to torment him and destroy his life. What he describes looks remarkably like my own findings on the lower order hallucinations. Again, so this is strange four-dimensional, fifth-dimensional, ninth-dimensional, vortical, uh, mercabic space that we are existing in that we can't fully visualize and fathom. But in that vortical space, we, I guess, are assigned spirits or something, or they, are we getting in, intertwined with them, and we both are unaware of it. So we might be affecting the spirits in whatever realm they're in. And so this when this barrier is broken and we both become aware of each other, that's where it's like, yo, what are you doing here, man? It's like, what are you doing here? I don't know. You know, and so we start like just like spiraling and for whatever reason it's easier for them to mess with us than it is for us with them. I don't know. Who knows? Um so, it is not clear how the awareness of barrier between spirits and man is broken. In Swedenberg's case, he had a way of minimal breathing and concentrating inwardly for most of his life, a practice that resembles the yogic pranayama and pratyahara, which is calculated to awaken inner awareness. And this is where we'll slowly start to transition to the other articles having to do with kundalini. In the context of his whole system of thought, one would surmise this inner barrier of awareness is penetrated when the person habitually withdraws from social usefulness into inner fantasy and pride. This would conform to contemporary social withdrawal, which is the earliest aspect of schizophrenia. That's why it's important, man, not to, you know, isolate yourself too much. Hey, maybe that's what... 2020s isolation was about man trying to get us all to be schizophrenic and break that barrier and allow for kundalini psychosis i don't know you never know but yeah man definitely go and and enjoy your time with people go hug people man go talk to people get out there do not sit around and go inward too much all of Swedenberg's observations on the effect of evil spirits entering man's consciousness conform to my findings. The most fundamental is that they attempt to destroy him. They can cause anxiety or pain. And here's another quote from Swedenberg. When spirits begin to speak with man, he must be aware lest he believe them in anything. For they say almost anything. Things are fabricated by them, and they lie. For if they were permitted to relate what heaven is, and how things are in the heavens, they would tell so many lies. Excuse me. And indeed, with a solemn affirmation, that man would be astonished. They are extremely fond of fabricating, and whenever any subject of discourse is proposed, they think that they know it, and give their opinions one after another. One in one way and another and another, all together as if they knew. And if a man listens and believes, they press on and deceive and seduce in diverse ways. So that made me think of the Bible verse that says, the devil is the father of all lies. Right? It goes something like that. And it's like, damn, dude. So like now I'm thinking, you know, were these ancient 
Christian writers referring to this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, obviously the 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 writers of the New Testament were aware of spirits. I mean, that's a, a very integral part of Christianity and the and the teachings of Jesus Christ is that we live in a spiritual realm and that spirits exist. And it's interesting how I believe it was John. I don't know one of them said that. Satan is the father of all lies. And it's crazy how these lower order voices who are anti-religious and very demonic um, love to lie. So it's like, were they already aware of this? Were they already aware of these psychosis spirits and warning us about them? You know, is that what's going on? I don't know. It's just interesting, man. It's got me thinking so many different things. We're almost coming to a close on this article and we'll get started on the next ones. These lower order spirits enter the man's memory and lose all personal memory. The personal memory was taken off at their death, leaving their more interior aspects. That they discover they are other than the man allows obsession and possession to take place and accounts for their claiming separate identity and convincing the patient of this. But their actual lack of personal memory comes from their taking on the patient's memory. It's weird. It's like a weird parasite, you know, like they, they, yeah, it's like a phantom, you know, it's literally like a hologram, a hologram of of a consciousness. It's like they don't have any of their identity. They just have like a very, very low operating consciousness and all it can do is just lie and be nasty. It may be that in the deeper degree of schizophrenia, the spirits have taken on more of their own memory. Swedenberg says this would lead man to believe he had done what he had not done. And this is a quote from him, I believe. For were spirits to retain their corporeal memory, they would so far obsess man that he would have no more self-control or be in the enjoyment of his life. I am just guessing at this point that the most serious of the mental disorders, where a person is totally out of contact and jabbers to himself and gesticulates strangely, are instances where these spirits have more memory and act more thoroughly through the person. It is then symbolically accurate that they are dead and someone else lives yeah so they're saying here apparently it's possible for some of these lower order beings to eventually remember themselves to eventually gain higher states of consciousness and be like wait whoa i remember me i remember who i was and oh my god i'm i'm a spirit i'm in this person i'm gonna i'm gonna use them you know so apparently it's possible for them to even become higher in their consciousness and yeah man it's just it's just wild it's wild stuff i wonder like what it looks like from their eyes you know um both swedenberg and the medieval literature speak of the aim of spirits to possess and control some part of a patient's body Swedenberg indicates that good spirits have some degree of control over the evil ones. Higher order hallucinations have made the same comment that they can control lower order ones. I encourage the patient to become acquainted with these helpful forces that tended to frighten him. When he did so, their values merged into him and the evil plotters, who had been saying for months they would kill him, disappeared. I found evil spirits cannot see the good, but the good can the evil. The lower order may know of the presence of the higher order, but they cannot see them. 
again, the Bible speaks of this, and I believe some of the apocryphal text speaks of this as well. It's like, demons tremble at the name of God. They tremble at the presence of the Lord. Oh, man, it all makes sense now. Oh, man, this is kind of like creeping me out, exciting me, and just throwing me through like an existential loop right now. It's like... I can kind of just see everything right now. It's all making sense right now. Trippy stuff, man. I'm inclined to speculate that Swedenberg's unconscious interaction of man with hierarchical kingdoms of heaven and hell and the modern theories of the unconscious are dealing with the same matter. One then wonders whether his spirits are merely pieces of the unconscious, or is the unconscious simply a reflection of this interaction with spirits. It is curious to reflect that, as Swedenberg has indicated, our lives may be the little free space at the confluence of giant higher and lower spiritual hierarchies. It may well be this confluence is normal and and only seems abnormal as in hallucinations when we become aware of being met by these forces. Swedenberg deliberately traversed this area so that he might describe the sources of feeling and thought itself. Man, thinking he chooses, may be the result of other forces. In Swedenberg's terms, the good man comes to see this and acknowledges his dependence. The evil one takes pride in what is more than his, and thereby puts himself out of harmony with the hierarchy of creation. Epic, man. That ends that one with this creepy little statue guy here. (laughs) It's like, we really are just vessels, man. We really are just spiritual machines, uh, you know, intended to receive our own consciousness so that we can operate here, but can be hijacked. You know, it's it's wild, man. Um, yeah, I loved that right there. This was an awesome read. And it's, I, I wanted to start with this one because I believe it's it's older out of all of the, the rest. And it, it kind of sets us up for the more modern interpretations of this. But you can see, right? It's like everything is quantum. Everything is interdimensional. And it's interesting how... This article here is touching on those subjects, and it was coming out of the early 20th century based on works, uh, based off of Swedenberg's work, which was coming out of the, the 19th century. And so it's like we've been slowly evolving to understand this quantum realm. And back then we called it spirits and heaven and hell, but now it's like these energetic beings and these interdimensions that we exist in, these quantum, you know, vortical realms, right? But yeah, again, if you want to read that one, it is, again, called The Presence of Spirits in Madness by Wilson Van Dusen. Yeah. All right, so we're going to go into the second one here. Again, about 16 pages. This one is titled, The Physio-Kundalini Syndrome and Mental Illness. This one dives more into whether or not, you know, kundalini and mental illness share any similarity, you know, um, statistically speaking, experimentally speaking. And this one was written by Bruce Grayson. 
who I'm assuming was some sort of psychologist or psychiatrist. All right, so here we go. In Eastern spiritual traditions, the biological mechanism of both individual enlightenment and evolution of the species toward higher consciousness is called Kundalini. The ancient yogic texts describe a life energy present in all living beings called prana. Kundalini could be activated or awakened under certain conditions to strengthen or purify an individual's prana. The dormant Kundalini is said to be situated at the base of the spine, and when aroused can travel upwards along the spinal cord to the brain, where it can stimulate a dormant chamber of the brain, leading to biological transformation and enunciously expanded perception. Now, Itzhak, Itzhak Bentov, a biomedical engineer who studied the physiological effects of altered states of consciousness, concluded that the normal biological evolution of the human nervous system could be accelerated under certain circumstances, triggering a predictable sequence of physiological stresses on the body that he described as a progressive sensory motor cortex syndrome, which Bentov called the Physio-Kundalini Syndrome. Basically, this physio-kundalini syndrome, which is the term we're going to use throughout this article, is like the modern um, explanation. I guess it's like the modern uh, yeah, explanation or version of kundalini, and it can be induced by, by uh, medical procedures or induced by more modern um, practices of similar Eastern kundalini practices. Um, but real quick, Itzhak Bentov, this dude's interesting too, and we, I could do a deep dive on him. He actually was the biomedical engineer who helped um, the CIA put together the famous um, Gateway doc document. And you've probably seen me talk about it, and you've seen me talk about it, <clears throat> and you've seen other people talk about it, I'm sure. Um, it was a part of my Crystal Lattice Mind Illusion book. But... Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, the CIA put together this famous document, which is only about 30 pages, called uh, Analysis, and Analysis and Assessment of the Gateway Process, which was this document which proves that we live in a hologram and there's interdimensions. And there is a mentioning in the document that there are interdimensional beings and specifically lower energy, lower vibrational beings. And so that whole document was put together by some dude named Colonel McDonnell and Itzhak Bentov. So, uh, yeah, Bentov was a pretty uh, heady, mystical engineer dude. And so Bentov put together this Physio-Kundalini Syndrome uh, system or metric or explanation, which again is a modern explanation, a modern medical explanation for Kundalini and its correlation to psychosis. Bentov speculated that the physio-kundalini symptoms could result from an electrical polarization spreading along the sensory and motor cortices, in turn induced by acoustical stand standing waves in the cerebral ventricles. That's actually uh, reflected in the CIA document. He speaks on, or, or yeah, he speaks on how we can use kundalini and how we can use meditation to induce um, higher states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness. 
Now, Lee Sinella, Lee Sinella wrote a book, which I wanted to use in this presentation, but um, it was like, it's like 70 pages and I, I just couldn't fit it in here. But Lee Sinella wrote a really cool book called uh, Kundalini or Psychosis, which I think you should definitely check out. Um, but his work or her work, I'm not sure if it's a him or her, but they, them uh, will be a reference throughout this entire thing um, because they uh, did some great work with that book. I apologize. If I seem a little out of it, man, it's, it is nighttime over here. It is close to my bedtime. I'm trying to get this done so that I don't have to do it tomorrow and I can actually enjoy some time off for once. Okay, so Lee Sinella, again, the author of Kundalini or Psychosis, a psychiatrist and ophthalmologist who has encountered patients presenting with problems attributable to Kundalini activation, views Bentoff's Physio-Kundalini Syndrome as the best available model. Sinella proposes that we employ the Physio-Kundalini model to study and treat patients suffering from the physiological dimension of the Kundalini experience. Most Western health professionals familiar with Kundalini now have gained their understanding of the concept through Bentoff's neurophysiological model of Sinella's elaboration in medical terminology of the implications and symptoms of the Physio-Kundalini syndrome. Wow, those are a lot of big words. Uh... Some investigators in the field of consciousness and near-death studies have suggested that the significance of the near-death experience may be its role as a catalyst for human evolution. And that's actually what we're going to get more into in the last article, how all of this kind of ties into our purpose here as humans and our transition to death and eventual immortality and eternity. They view the reported mental, physical, and spiritual after-effects of NDEs, near-death experiences, as similar to changes traditionally reported by people awakening to a higher-order state of consciousness. Yeah, so again, it's like death, psychosis, kundalini, psychedelics. They all have this thing in common, which is an altered state of consciousness, uh, a sense of eternity, a sense of oneness, and so they're all connected. They all are sisters of some strange science or process, which in the last article will be somewhat explained. Okay. Kenneth Ring was the first Western consciousness researcher to speculate in detail about the role of Kundalini in near-death experiences. He presented anecdotal evidence of similarities between Kundalini awakenings and the common after-effects of NDEs. And uh, Kenneth Ring, Kenneth Ring, is actually uh, the author who we're going to be, whose article we will be uh, analyzing at the end of this presentation. This association between Kundalini and nearly dying is by no means a recent discovery. 
While Eastern traditions have developed elaborate lifelong practices and lifestyles with the intent of awakening Kundalini, they have also claimed that when the brain is deprived of oxygen, Kundalini may actually rush to the brain in an effort to sustain life. In fact, one bizarre and unusual yoga sect practiced suffocation by tongue swallowing in the hope that Kundalini would rush to their brains and produce enlightenment. Now this reminds me of uh, breath, breath work, which I recently got into, which I like because it, it, it induces like a, a subtle psychedelic state. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're like the, doing this breath work, right? They're like these breathing exercises that in essence are just inducing a, a lack of oxygen in our brain. And it's like these pockets of, of holding our breath, exhaling dramatically. Like all of that is basically just, it's flowing. It's getting the oxygen flowing, the, cere the cerebral spinal fluid flowing, but it's also kind of just like constricting oxygen to the brain, which causes like these psychedelic experiences. Dangerous stuff, man. Interesting. Kundalini should only be awakened by a gradual process under the guidance of someone who has first-hand experience with it. Otherwise, a Kundalini awakening in a body and soul not properly prepared can produce negative effects, including psychosis. Western culture typically provides neither proper context nor proper guidance so that the earliest indications of kundalini activity may lead to major disruptions in functioning that are often confused with psychotic disorders. Greenwell, um, who I'm assuming is some doctor or psychiatrist, describes clients undergoing the kundalini process who seek therapy because they feel disengaged from their former sense of self, engage in irrational behavior, see visions, make involuntary movements usually associated with mental illness, and suffer physical pains and changes. She lists one of the effects of Kundalini awakening as a psychological and emotional upheaval, including intensification of unresolved psychological conflict, fear of death or insanity, overwhelming mood swings, heightened sensitivity to others' moods, confusion, ritualistic or impulsive behavior, insomnia, uncharacteristic intense sexual drives, gender identity issues, strange, seeing lights or hearing sounds, indecisiveness and boundary issues, grandiosity and trance-like states of consciousness. Well, how many of those do you have? <laughs> that should be a first date uh, question right there. So, uh, do you experience any of the following? <laughs> What's strange is I actually experienced some of these. But the gender identity issue one is strange, man. That's kind of weird. What's up with that? So are all these like they thems and zers out here going through Kundalini awakening? What's going on, buddy? Or are they going through psychosis? Um Bentov and Sinella believed that Kundalini in itself would not induce psychosis in a previously healthy individual, but that a const but that a constitutionally weak nervous system already predisposed predisposed to emotional problems might decompensate under the stress of kundalini awakening so that's why you got to practice strengthening your mind meditate do a little bit of breath work you know shit man even do a little bit a little bit of math here and there why not 
practice of multiplication, read. Reading is actually very healthy for the mind and the memory system. And not just on your phone or tablet, but pick up a book, man. Pick up a book, get under some sunlight, and read. It's very, very good for you. Certainly some kundalini phenomena resemble, at least in description, symptoms of schizophrenia. For example, hearing internal voices. Um, such typical physio-kundalini phenomena as pockets in the body of, of extreme temperature, changes in breathing, specific localized pains, expanding beyond the body, out-of-body experiences, deep ec ecstatic tickles, uh, intima lights or colors, and an ascending anatomic progression of symptoms are not characteristic of schizophrenia. So these are things that are strictly um, described as kundalini symptoms that are not described in schizophrenic symptoms. On the other hand, such typical schizophrenic phenomena uh, as delusions, deteriorating hygiene, social isolation, lack of energy, incoherent speech, illogical thoughts, bizarre behavior, and deteriorating social role functioning uh, are not necessarily seen in kundalini awakenings. So these are basically a list of things that uh, can help us identify whether or not somebody's having a spiritual awakening yay or having a psychosis uh oh <laughs> and um it's useful information to have i think let me see here. Some authors have asserted that kundalini awakening or inappropriate treatment of it is a frequent cause of psychosis, while others maintain that mental illness occurs only in individuals predisposed to it prior to a kundalini awakening. Okay, and so he says here, the purpose of this study was to explore indications of kundalini awakenings in an unselected sample of psychiatric patients. And so um, basically he goes on to say that he conducted a study to find out whether there is a con uh, connection between kundalini and psychosis. You know, whether the two uh, can be considered basically um, having a connection. You know, like, are people who are undergoing psychosis also going through a subtle kundalini? Or are people who are experiencing kundalini um, at the risk of falling into psychosis? You know, one or the other. Because the important thing here is, if there are people out there who are going through subtle kundalini, and we misdiagnose them as psych psychotic, th then we're doing them a major disservice. Instead of guiding them through that process, we're just basically throwing them in a, in a psychiatric ward and pump pumping them full of drugs that they did not need, and have now just um, done irreversible damage to them, you know. And so the rest of the article basically describes the test that he did. And if, if you want to go look at it, go look at it. You know, if you have a knack for science, he breaks down exactly what he did. You know, basically took some test subjects um, and did all kinds of thing things on them. And I'm going to just skip to the conclusion. And so this is what he concluded after doing the studies. Uh, 
and he did a study on numerous people, people who had near-death experiences, who have had kundalini awakenings, and people who have had near-death experiences who have not had kundalini awakenings, and um, some people who only have psychosis, who have had psychotic breakdowns. And what he concluded was, these data do not support anecdotal suggestions that kundalini phenomena are common in mental illness. Basically stating that the the people who are experiencing psychotic breakdowns are, are not undergoing a kundalini awakening. They are simply having a psychotic breakdown. These findings contradict the assertions of some authors that large numbers of institutionalized psychiatric patients suffer from misdiagnosed kundalini awakenings. These data also bolster or support the claim that kundalini is a non-pathological force that produces a unique pattern of physiological and psychological effects. Now that part is exciting. I was a little bummed out to find out that the crazy people in the psychiatric ward aren't undergoing a massive spiritual awakening are gonna and are gonna blossom into you know kundalini guru warriors you know kind of bummed out to find out the guy at the bus stop flinging you know shit out the street is simply crazy and not actually uh a mystic guru from atlantis in disguise kind of bummed out to find that out but um this is just his study you know it doesn't negate the fact that there is a major similarity you know, but again, the the exciting thing about it is that he found here that this data supports that Kundalini is a non-pathological force, meaning it is a non-biological force. It is a spiritual force that that um, supersedes psychosis, because psychosis is is a pathological process. You know, it, it, it's a deterioration of of our bodily um, systems. But Kundalini supersedes that. It is it's not a psychosis. So this means that Kundalini awakening is actually something way more fascinating. It's non-pathological, it's quantum. Um and so he says here the low incidence of Kundalini symptoms in psychiatric patients contradicts the notion that Kundalini may be a product of the imagination or of a suggestion in individuals with ego deficits. I think that's that's badass, man. So it means that uh, there's a win-win there for Kundalini awakening. There's a win-win there for the mystics and the spirits. But I still believe, I still want to believe that the, some of the psychiatric people out there, psychiatric patients, are undergoing a Kundalini spiritual awakening. I'm here for you, brothers and sisters. Hang in there. I believe in you. You are blossoming into a beautiful butterfly. Um, so conclusion here in summary symptoms of the physio kundalini syndrome are reported far more often by individuals known to experience kundalini awakening than by psychiatric and particularly psychotic patients furthermore certain specific physio kundalini symptoms can be identified as being particularly helpful in differentiating kundalini awakening from mental illness um yeah, so, so this can basically be useful in helping us understand if somebody's going through a kundalini awakening, basically meaning that uh, their body is going through an intense and critical shift in its processes, which are inducing an altered state of consciousness, which 
can result in the person having a very traumatic experience and you know you might be freaking out because your body is literally activating in all these ways that it wasn't activated before and your mind and consciousness are literally upgrading and so you are starting to see and hear things that you normally wouldn't and so you're going to freak out if you're not prepared for that and so you might be running around having a panic attack running to the doctor and and if they don't understand that this this is a kundalini experience and not a psychotic experience you might be misdiagnosed so if anything this just does a good job for for uh, the medical world to create a line between these two worlds and uh hopefully and i doubt it knowing the way this world works you know we can help guide and mediate these kundalini awakenings and also help treat the psychotic breakdowns that people are having but they're gonna just be lumped up all into one and say take this drug it's gonna make you feel good and you know oh man okay we're going on to the last article here this one again is about 14 pages um i think there's less that i highlighted here now it looks about the same i'm tired okay anyways i'm gonna stay awake i got i'm gonna do this for y'all man <clears throat> so this is again from Kenneth Ringer, the the guy that was mentioned in the last article, who was one of the first to start looking at near death experiences and consciousness and Kundalini and that kind of thing. And this is from an article or an essay that he wrote titled "From Alpha to Omega: Ancient Mysteries and Near Death Experiences." And this is where it kind of all gets tied in right here, folks, where it gets really exciting. All right. Uh, the Osirian temple rites of ancient Egypt may have involved ceremonial procedures deliberately calculated to induce an experience that was functionally identical to modern near-death experiences. And again, near-death experience is a is a sister to Kundalini and um, psychosis and psychedelics. Right, they are all processes or phenomena um, or experiences that exist within the realm of quantum interdimensional altered states of consciousness. It was philosopher Michael Grosso who has since written about this point that in the most famous of the Greek mysteries, those at Eleusis, the initiates into what are known as the greater mysteries may well have in undergone a psychedelically psychedelically uh, assisted death and rebirth experience akin to an NDE. Later, Grosso concluded, the ancient Greeks seem, in fact, to have worked out a fairly effective method. Uh, yes, uh, for inducing a type of functionally equivalent near-death experience. The origins of the mystery traditions in Egypt, like those of its colossal pyramids, are likely to remain forever obscure to us. But there is one highly relevant fact about what these initiations involved that in the view of many deep students of these rites seem incontestable. The candidate who successfully completed the trials comprising the supreme initiation came to know experientially that there is no death that therefore his true self is immortal manly p hall and we all know who he is advanced this position as follows 
saying, I think it is very important to bear in mind that the initiate system in Egypt was based upon one tremendous point, that the individual should learn through personal experience that death is an illusion. The initiates of the mysteries were persons who had lived, died, and been born again in this world. He came out of darkness into light, knowing as a certainty beyond question that there was no death. That was my manly P. Hall voice. Too deep, but I think I got his rhythm there right. I love listening to his talks. Yeah, so as we're getting into it, right? So like these Greek mysteries, these Egyptian mysteries, were all centered around going through the process of death so that you could learn that there is no death. We are all immortal, eternal, infinite. When the Caliph al-Mamun, in search of fabulous treasure that many believed lay within the pyramid, penetrated into its interior in 820 AD and discovered its now famous passageways, he not only failed to find riches, he found in effect nothing. No artwork adorned the corridors or the chambers. No hieroglyphics provided us a basis for inferring what the inner structures of the pyramid were used for. No mummy was found to substantiate the view that this mighty temple was intended to be the enormous tomb of the pharaoh. In the largest of the rooms then discovered, now called the king's chamber, there was, it is true, one of the one item of interest, an open stone coffin. And Hall, Manly P. Hall, wrote that he knew what rituals were conducted in the king's chamber and what its coffin was used for. As he says, In the king's chamber was enacted the drama of the second death. The room was a doorway between the material world and the transcendental spheres of nature. While his body lay in the coffer, the soul of the neophyte soared as a human-headed hawk through the celestial realms, there to discover firsthand the eternity of life, light, and truth, as well as the illusion of death, darkness, and sin. Thus, in one sense, the Great Pyramid may be likened to a gate through which the ancient priest permitted a few to pass toward the attainment of individual completion. It is also to be noted, incidentally, that if the coffer in the king's chamber be struck, the sound emitted has no counterpart known in any known musical scale. The tonal value may have formed part of that combination of circumstances which rendered the king's chamber an ideal setting for the conferment of the highest degree of the mysteries. Yeah, so it's strange, right? We have the great pyramids, these strange rituals of death, and in the great pyramid there's there are no writings, no indications that these that these things were used for civilization or any you know, uh, normal societal purposes, nothing. All we found was just this empty coffin. And what this makes me realize, as we'll also see in this article, is that the king's chamber with that empty coffin was used like, was used as an isolation chamber, was used like an isolation pod that many people like to do today right to lay in that coffin in the great pyramid with those sounds and with the geometries that the pyramid brought all of those intricacies 
put together while the person was laying in that empty coffin induced um, a, a, an isolation in the mind and body which caused the mind to separate from the body. It induced astral projection as we shall see. So, um, Paul Bruton, or Paul Brunton, 1984, who, I don't know, I'm assuming was some academician, um, on his own quite extraordinary experiences one night, or says of one of his quite extraordinary experiences one night while alone in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, that, according to his own account, at one point found himself separated from his physical body and thereby absorbed some of the typical insights now commonly reported by today's near-death experiencers. Again, so this coffin, the king's chamber, all of it was meant to induce a near-death experience, meant to induce astral projection. It's a giant isolation pod. Bruton's formulation begins in complete accord with Hall's. And this is what, this is what uh, Manly P. Hall says on that point. This August rite was nothing more or less than a process which combined hypnotic, magical, and spiritual forces in an, in an attempt to detach the candidate's soul from the heavy bondage of his fleshy body for a few hours and sometimes for a few days, that he might ever after live with the memory of this epic-making experience and conduct himself accordingly. The survival of the soul after death accepted by most men through faith in their religion, he was henceforth able to accept, strengthened in his conviction by the evidence of his personal knowledge. The whole purpose was to teach the candidate that there is no death. And I would assume that a lot of the Freemason uh, ceremonies are... are Center around this kind of thing too, right? Because they have all those weird things where they make the point the sword at you, and they don't they like put a bag over your head and put you in a coffin and all that kind of weird stuff too. So it's all centered around this this idea and this truth, right? That we are quantum, we are eternal, we are infinite. But to get to that point, you have to go through a death. Literally, to 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 go into our infinite self, we have to die very literally and physically in this realm and so all of life as we'll see in this article as well is is a mystery right is a mystery ritual it's it's a microcosm of uh revealing to ourselves our infinite self and Brunton says here, The mind is affected and agitated in death, just as it is in initiation into the great mysteries. The first stage is nothing but errors and uncertainties, laborings, wanderings, and darkness. And now, arrived on the verge of death and initiation, everything wears a dreadful aspect. It is all horrors, trembling, and affrightment. But this scene is once over a miraculous and divine uh or but this scene once over a mira okay sorry but this scene once over a miraculous and divine light displays itself perfect and initiated they are free crowned triumphant they walk in regions of the blessed 
Perhaps the entire experience can be made more vivid if we resort for a moment to one of the novelistic reconstructions, uh, reconstructed by this guy named Schur from 1971. At dusk, the priest of Osiris, bearing torches, accompanied with the new adept into the lower crypt, says, No man escapes death, and every living soul is destined to resurrection. The initiate lay down in the open sarcophagus. A choir of deep voices is heard, low and muffled. Where does it come from? It is the funeral chant. He is breathing his last. The lamp cast a final light. Then it extinguished entirely. The adept is alone in the darkness. The coldness of the tomb falls upon him, freezing all his limbs. Gradually he experiences the painful sensation of death and falls into a lethargy. His life passes before him in successive scenes like something unreal, and his earthly consciousness becomes more and more vague and diffuse. But as he feels his body disintegrate, the ethereal part, the fluid in his being, is disengaged. He enters into an ecstasy yeah again you see here it's like we really are consciousness but we are here in the crystal lattice mind illusion the matrix believing that we're just this body but in order to get back to the realization of self the realization of our infinite etherical beingness we have to undergo a death an ego death, a, a physical, literal death at the end of this wonderful journey within this school. You know, so you see how it's all micro and macrocosm. Psychedelics teaches us the, the ego death. Psychosis, death of, 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 of normalcy. You know, and Kundalini is the death of the old self. And death is quite literally the death of who we are here in this limited three-dimensional space. It's fascinating, folks. It's amazing stuff. Quantum, vortical, energetic system. The mysteries changed a man a man's the mysteries changed a man's attitude toward death and consequently altered his conduct towards his life. Diodorus, a native of Sicily, said, It is said that those who have participated in the mysteries became more spiritual, more just, and better in every way. And to me, honestly, like, yes, it's spiritual and religious, but it's to me, it's, it's existential. Again, this is a philosophy I've been practicing more so these days. It, to me... You know, spiritualism, religion, yeah, these are like these like uh, dogmatic ways, philosophical ways of reaching these these realizations. But to me, this is all just really at the end of the day, existentialism. It's just realizing that we're human here, and we should embrace that. But we're not human after this. We should also embrace that and curate that and nourish it as well
Nevertheless, my interest here goes beyond that of just drawing parallels between ancient rites and modern experience. I think that if we are properly to understand the significance of NDEs and their potential contribution to our planet's future, we need in fact not so much to dwell on the similarities I have so far stressed, but to bring out some of the principal differences between the mysteries of antiquity and the NDEs of today. In ancient times, the number of candidates who were initiated into the mysteries were really quite small. This contrasts with millions of NDEers just in the United States alone. The typical NDEer finds himself willy-nilly suddenly confronted by the onset of apparent imminent death with no warning and certainly in most cases little or no spiritual training of the kind that might provide some preparatory insight into the nature and implications of the NDE. His or her experience comes not through conscious choice, but as a direct consequence of unwanted illness or accident. The hierophants are the res the resuscit oh my gosh resuscitation team. <laughs> Sorry, me and S's man, we don't get along. So uh, again, his or her experience comes not through conscious choice, but as a direct consequence of unwanted illness or accident. The hierophants are the resuscitation team, which administers the modern equivalent of the initiation ceremony, CPR. The setting is the contemporary sterile hospital where illness is central and subjective experience an annoying distraction to be minimized or disregarded it's wild right how like back then death was was so beautiful and respected and revered and 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 walked through in ceremony and ritual where now it's like this chaotic just like mundane thing and we're just like dying in hospital beds but as the author just said here if you really stop and think about it it's like this it's still this very ceremonious ritualistic thing with with its own set of symbols and its own set of um rites of passage and characters at play here in my opinion, we must be mindful that most NDEers, however numerous they are and however much publicity they have received, are essentially neophytes on the spiritual path. Like most of the rest of us, they are still struggling to find their way and to reflect the light more fully. However, we must remember that precisely because most NDEers have become thrust into their initiation without either purification or preparation, they may bring back a somewhat distorted version of its essential insights or even, if that is not the case, be unable truly to appreciate its significance or conduct themselves in accordance with its spiritual implications. The NDE, because of its powerful, or sorry, the NDE, because of its power of spiritual transformation, could have a significant role to play in accelerating human evolution toward a higher level of consciousness. The millions of NDEers might be regarded as the prototype of a more highly evolved type of human being now coming into manifestation, for which I appropriated the term Homo Noeticus, the seed of a higher humanity. I love this right here. Now, if you haven't watched my documentary on Pierre Taylhard, um, go check it out. It's it's uh, 
it's titled like we are humans having a spiritual experience or spiritual beings having a human experience whatever um we all know the quote right we are spiritual beings having a human experience again existentialism at its core um but that saying was was put together uh by pierre taylard the french jesuit mystic um, and who was just a fascinating guy awesome fascinating go watch the documentary but he believed in this very same idea that we were slowly evolving to a more spiritual being who would be able to actually understand and fathom this universe on a whole different level and it's funny how this author called it that that uh evolving being a uh, homo noeticus because pierre taylard um believed in in something that he called the noah the noosphere well it's something a lot of people in this time were, were actually speaking about the no the noosphere was this like developing omni consciousness that was like in a sort of sense like a like a like an ai of consciousness a, a, a quantum consciousness that we were creating in some distant future which would be a summation of all of our consciousnesses that we would uh use as some sort of like source literally source like it would be an artificial source for all of us to gain spiritual powers from it, it's a strange concept but basically we have the actual source right we have real source which which fuels all of this but pierre taylor believed that as we all individually upgraded our consciousness um that collectively that upgrade would would create an energetic sphere or force or realm which would he called the no the noosphere which what i would call uh like an omni consciousness an omni quantum consciousness which would be a summation of all of our consciousnesses which we can directly interface with you know for beneficial purposes for valuable purposes you know so it would be like literally like yeah an artificial source an artificial god in a sense that we can use to gain uh, power from you know and when i say power i mean for beneficial reasons because as taylor believe and as well as kenneth ring believes and as i also believe um, we're only going to reach that level of, of uh spiritual conscious upliftment through positivity you know through positive unification you know we're never going to reach that place with these lower orders these lower voices and lower vibrations no it's only going to happen once we start vibrating higher and so um, once we get to that point and create this omni consciousness it's going to be a positive ai not this like weird you know physical ai that we're that we're creating now which which is basically a degraded version of it right this this uh quantum ai that we're building um this singularity ai that we're building is is the degraded lower form of that it's it's a summation of all of our knowledge right it's a summation of everything we know and that's why you can use chat gpt and google and this and that and be like hey you know what's the answer to this or whatever it's that same idea but on a spiritual quantum level where we create this omni consciousness that we can uh interact with and, and utilize in the same way that you, we utilize chat gpt you know we can wake up as like these elevated homo noeticus and be like today i want to i don't know today i want to travel to universe b and you know omni consciousness will be like 
okay taking you to universe b <laughs> or whatever you know it's like but we're never going to get to that point um until we actually evolve as a collective um through positive higher vibrations um within a unification right anyway uh and so paul brunton says the experience of initiation was a miniature duplicate microcosm of the experience which was destined to become that of the whole human race you see we go through our individual deaths and we're all going to go through a very real death together right through these yugas which is going to shed the consciousness that we have now and birth in this new omni consciousness maybe i don't know or we're just gonna or we're just gonna die and get buried in the sands like all the other atlantean races uh, and then uh a new civilization will spring up with all these weird new you know technologies and donut shops and whatever else humans will continue to create and Hall said here, Manly P. Hall said here, it would be most helpful if at this time psychologists and other specialists in the field of man's internal phenomena would consider the possibility that the mystic is the prototype of future humanity. It is the mystic who will be the superhuman of tomorrow. The operations of nature nearly always manifest first by producing isolated examples of processes later to become general. These apparent anomalies gradually increase in number until they establish the new norm. In this way, the exceptional is slowly transformed into the usual and acceptable. Whoa, that reminds me of another new norm that we were introduced to recently. You see, you see how the mainstream uses esoteric and occult philosophies and tenets for all the annoying and New World Order surveillance state agendas. They're trying to mimic what our creator has intended for us. Our creator has intended for us to upgrade into an omni-consciousness, but instead we get the cheaper version of AI singularity. Thus, the Alpha of the Ancient Mysteries implies the same ultimate evolutionary destiny as does the Omega, hypothesis of modern near-death studies. We are talking about a divine human potential with the inherent power to spiritualize the individual and his world. Um, and Michael Grosso says here, one place the ancient archetype of the Western Overself returns with all the f what? Hold on. One place the ancient archetype of the Western Overself returns with all the force of the repressed is the hospital deathbed. Amid the scene of ritual resuscitation where, unfortunately, there are no hierophants, no guides, no one to help tease out the meaning of the experience from the afterglow of memory, there the mythology of death and enlightenment comes to life, powerful as old, flashing with transforming light, the heights and the abysses all intact, but probably for the great majority, and it would seem, we are talking of millions now, 
well, billions now. One has to say with T.S. Eliot, we had the experience but missed the meaning. Every person's life is a mystery ritual, and it may be the mark of the new age to come that every person will have to be his or her own hierophant. If indeed we are heading toward Omega, it will not be a free ride. We shall have to work to get there, beginning with the never-ending work on ourselves. Well, well, that concludes all of the articles. But uh, let me wrap this up with some concluding thoughts, man. I mean, that was a lot. Thank you for sitting through that. I mean, it's it's wild, right? It's like it's obvious that there is so much more to the to the human mind, to the quantum realm, to death, to life. But I think the most important thing to take away from all of this is that you know we need to start viewing life more so as a, a mystery, a mystery, right? a ritual ceremony be more you know Tao about it you know i like the Taoist teachings because the Taoist teachings basically you know demonstrate or basically teach us how to live life in a ceremony you know everything every action everything we do should be for a higher purpose literally everything i remember reading in this Taoist manuscript i forgot what it was but it talked about how the the taoist would view life as a ritual as a ceremony and this this ceremony was 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 for the greater purpose and the greater purpose was for elevating human morality elevating human consciousness literally down to the way they pour tea hold the cup and walk over to serve it to the people or whatever it's like everything has to be structured because our universe is structured so if we're a microcosm of of god in the universe we should act accordingly we should act with organization with morality with structure with balance and that's why all of these ancient structures were built in that way that's why the freemasons are, are all about you know balance and duality and and building um, with precision to the great architect and all that craziness you know it's like we need to get back to that uh that tartarian um sorry i thought i heard something <laughs> uh i'm going crazy man uh no but we need to get back to that tartarian respect for archaeology that respect for the divinity that respect for aesthetic and the way we walk and the way we talk you know um because hey we're not here forever in this realm and so we might as well fully embrace it fully um yeah fully embrace it and and also attempt to connect with our higher self connect with these higher orders and connect with source because eventually we'll be allowing and helping the evolution of our entire race of our own beingness to to reach these higher levels right and that's why the powers that be or the powers that want to be the wannabe powers attempt to suppress this at every chance they get because the more we stay in these lower orders, these lower vibrations, 
the 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 less chance we have at elevating you know and so so yeah man life is a ritual life is a ritual you are in your own mythology right now and it's interesting how all of this was about dying and rising and jesus was about dying and rising that's what jesus's message was too we are in a spiritual realm he had to die to be reborn and you shall be reborn again to live in the kingdom of heaven when forever yo eternity you see what i'm saying it all connects man it all connects and so if you feel like you're having a kundalini awakening if you feel like you're going crazy you know tune into that a little bit you know and uh definitely seek some help if, if you feel like you need to seek some professional help because as we learned there's a fine line between kundalini and psychosis you know so tap in man tap in i hope i hope this helped i hope you had fun I had a great time reading those articles. There's so much more for me to dive into now. And I've learned about some cool and interesting people that I can also do some deep dives on, which I will. So keep it infinite, yo. Keep it psychotic. Keep it kundalini. Next time. I'll see you next time. Uh, I'm, I'm just tired at this point. I'm literally delusional right now. Little Delulu. Anyways, love y'all. Peace.